welcome to the 20th episode of At The Bar. Uh, today is January 27th, which is the day you might have heard uh, it from some, some proponents or shall we say ideologues claim that the Equal Rights Amendment has actually gained force of law and has been ratified into the Constitution as, as of today. So we are going to be discussing whether or not that's true, the merits of the ERA, and a whole bunch of, of other uh, fun subjects for, for this At The Bar episode. Jennifer? Hi, yeah, Jennifer Braceres here, Independent Women's Law Center. And we are once again um, thrilled to have Mae Davis with us, who is our senior legal fellow with the Law Center. And May and I have both been working uh, most of the day on a brief uh, that we are going to be filing in the DC circuit, um, where we are opposing the efforts of three states to shoehorn this 1970s era proposal into the Constitution without our consent. So we'll talk about that a little bit too. Thanks um, for joining us, May. All right, I'm excited. Yeah, so so let's kick it off. Um, you might have seen uh, if if you've been kind of following this ERA issue either with us at at the bar or with with some other folks uh, that you keep an eye on that people are claiming that we actually have a 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So here's just an example of one of these op-eds, or you might have heard it um, from, from a law center, for example, emails uh, going out with copies of the Constitution with the 28th Amendment, uh, like the Columbia Law Center um, over at Columbia Law School. I can't remember what the, the acronym they use is, but it's something focused on um, the ERA itself. And they've distributed copies of the Constitution with this amendment ratified. So here, here's an example of one of these op-eds claiming that the ERA becomes the 28th Amendment today. This is January 27th. And that is the two-year anniversary of the amendment being ratified by Virginia, which if you count, and we'll get into all these issues, if you count all of the states that were ratified the Equal Rights Amendment all the way back uh, in the 70s, and you don't count the four states that have rescinded their ratifications, and you don't count the one state that had a sunset clause. If you add up all of those ratifications plus three modern ratifications culminating in two years ago in Virginia, then you can claim that you have ratified this amendment by 38 states. So we're going to get into <laughs> whether or not that's true. Um, Jennifer, do you want to, to lay out some of the arguments that the Law Center is um, putting forward as to why this amendment is not actually properly ratified? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. But why don't we first just tee up the PBS clip that will kind of give our listeners a bit of the background and the history of, of this proposal? Let's go all the way back to the 70s. Yeah. The ERA would guarantee protection from sex discrimination in the Constitution, something not explicitly stated elsewhere. It says, quote, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. But before it could be enshrined in the Constitution, the ERA needed three quarters of all states, 38 total, to ratify it. Congress set a deadline for that goal. The ERA came up three states shy by the original deadline in 1979. 1982 saw a deadline extension. Still, the ERA fell short. So that was sort of sort of the state of play. They, you know, they introduced this amendment. Um, it was passed out of Congress with bipartisan support. It went to the states, and very quickly, a bunch of states ratified it. Um, 
Again, it had it had support from Betty Ford, the Republican First Lady. It had support across the aisle until uh, a woman named Phyllis Schaffler came on the scene and started opening people's eyes to what this amendment would do if it were actually ratified. And at that point, some states uh, started to hit the pause button and refused to ratify it. As you mentioned, Inez, some states rescinded their ratifications when they realized uh, what the Equal Rights Amendment would do. Um, I know, you know, it sounds, I think, to a lot of people, my my daughters, my 20-something daughters included, like a pretty un, you know, non-controversial thing. Um, the wording of it is pretty vague, and it sounds like something we would all agree on, that there shouldn't be sex discrimination. Um, but, Inez, I know you've written a lot about why those seemingly innocuous words have some really dangerous repercussions. And I wonder if you could just kind of lay some of those out. Sure. Um, so one of the problems with, with the way that people have latched on to this very simple language is that it really is, is almost too simple because uh, it doesn't take into account the fact that men and women are actually biologically different. And therefore, there are some situations, not all situations, um, but there are some situations in which those biological differences are, are relevant. So, and those are situations that women depend on without even thinking um, throughout their days, right? So we're talking about when you go to the airport, um, you can request a pat down from a TSA officer who is the same sex, right? Um, when, if, if you're convicted of a crime and you go to prison, you assume you're going to go to a women's prison and not be housed with male prisoners. Um, and, and finally, there are all kinds of um, implications for women's sports, dormitories, uh, sororities and fraternities, pretty much any, any place in which men and women are separated um, by sex is a potential uh, thing that the ERA would actually forbid. So um, even though sex discrimination is already illegal, uh, it's illegal under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, if not falling into one of these sort of flexibility exceptions, um, it's already forbidden under federal law. All 50 states forbid uh, sex discrimination. Um, but our law right now is flexible to recognize the fact that it's not what people would colloquially think of as quote unquote discrimination to have men's and women's prisons. Um, that seems to people to be totally common sense, uh, but that's really what the difference the ERA could make in our constitution is to have it be interpreted um, to, to forbid any kind of recognition of any kind of men's and women's spaces, sports teams, all of these issues that we're dealing with in the context of what are essentially exceptions of people who are born one sex and identify as the other. The ERA would, would kind of make all those issues mute, moot because you wouldn't have to identify as a woman to go to a women's prison, you would just say, it's a discrimination on the basis of sex that's keeping me out. Right. So, you know, so many of those issues are issues that Phil Shaffley and the opponents of the ERA didn't even think about at that time. They were really focused on um, women in combat and whether or not it would force women to be drafted, which would still be true today. Phyllis's concerns on that point um, are still valid, but I don't know that they could have anticipated you know, the whole gender identity thing that, that you know, is going on now that, that changes the debate even more. Um, but Meg, why don't you tell us a little bit about the procedural posture of 
the legal case in the D.C. Circuit and who the parties are, who's arguing what, and, and what our position is at IW. Yeah, so right after Virginia, and this is, you know, old Virginia when it was Democrats all the way down, right after they uh, passed their, you know, so-called ratification, they immediately went to the D.C. Circuit and sued and said that this guy whose job it is to physically print the Constitution needs to print the Constitution with uh, the Equal Rights Amendment in it. And, um, you know, at that point, it was the Trump administration. They opposed it, but they also had a few states join uh, to also oppose it. So there, it will always be opposed no matter what, which is kind of a, a good posture to have. And um, IWF is joining on behalf of the United States government and on behalf sort of of those intervener states to say, yeah, you can't make this guy go print something that doesn't exist. So uh, the and there's there's a couple reasons why. One is that when Congress said, hey, states, here's the Equal Rights Amendment, you have seven years to pass it. So seven years from 1972 is not 2017. Like, I don't I'm not great at math, but I know that. Um, so that's one problem. And of course, Virginia says, well, you put it in the in this sentence, not that sentence. And so, you know, you had to put it in the text of the ERA itself, which, of course, I don't even know what that would look like. Like equal rights shall not be abridged. And this has to be right. Like the fact that it has to be in that sentence is just a totally new, totally made up argument. And there's no basis for it. That's the whole point of a made up argument is that they're just grasping. Then the other point um, that IWF makes is that let's even pretend that there isn't a deadline or the court doesn't like the deadline for some reason. Under any set of circumstances, you can't have something be proposed in one generation and then kind of get support throughout the generations. And, and actually, it would be one thing if it was kind of constantly under debate, but then just put away for two generations and then ratified. And the way that I think about it is this, like, let's take Build Back Better it didn't pass and it didn't pass very narrowly, but it didn't pass. And so if they want to try it again, they've got to, you know, put some pieces together and try and figure it out. But what essentially is being proposed here is that build back better. You could just let it sit open. And then probably later, some state, you know, in our brief, like we'll pick a state, Tennessee has a lot of people coming in from California, a lot of people coming in from New York. And at some point, Tennessee might have two liberal senators. And so they will vote and, and say, OK, we want Build Back Better back. Well, then the House might have changed and they might be Republicans and say, no, no, no. You know, at that point, maybe New York is, is conservative and they say, no, no, no. So the fact that you can just kind of piece together support and then say this passed is not a democracy by any stretch. There's no majority of support. It's just piecing little pieces together. And that's you know, that that's not how our Constitution is meant to be amended. Yeah, it, it almost seems like um, there's no way under this this novel interpretation of how our ratification system works. One, it really seems to gut the spirit of Article five. Right. The idea being, I mean, everybody learns in, in civics. I don't know if they do anymore, given our public schools, but um, everybody learns in civics that you can amend the Constitution with sort of an overwhelming majority of the American people. It's supposed to be sort of a super majority, right? That's why it requires three quarters of the states, two two thirds of each House of Congress um, to amend the Constitution. That is supposed to represent this overwhelming 
majority of American voters, right? Um, and it seems like this is very contrary. The, the idea here be, is, is that the voters in just one state can ratify. And even if everyone else who voted for this amendment is dead or no longer voting, right, um, that, that that one state can ratify on behalf of the entire country. And, and the second implication from this, of course, is can we reject an amendment? Like ever? <laughs> ever. Or do they just sit there until they garner enough states slowly one over time, like for different reasons over right. hundreds of years. That, that seems to be the the claim of the ERA proponents because they claim that you cannot ever rescind your approval. Um, and they claim that, that ratification stays open indefinitely in perpetuity. So I guess by, by that um, definition, you no, you can never reject an amendment. And I think legally what they point to is the ratification of the 27th amendment, which happened 200 years after it was first proposed. Um, I don't know if one of you want to take a stab at explaining that little gem, but um, I think there are many reasons why that doesn't apply here. Yeah, that, that was in, you know, the original bill of rights. So you didn't have decades uh, or even centuries of practice built up. And now we do. So with the proposal of the 18th Amendment, they had done this over, you know, they had gotten experience with how to propose uh, constitutional amendments and all of the surrounding proposals had deadlines. And what I think is very interesting is that during prohibition, all these people who were bidding, being put in jail for selling alcohol are like, this is ridiculous. I'd like, uh, I think that the 18th Amendment is unconstitutional. Why? Because it was proposed with a seven year limit. And they said Congress didn't have authority to propose a seven year limit. And because they didn't have authority to propose it, the 18th Amendment is dead, prohibition is over, and I'm let out of jail. And the wow. Supreme Court said, no, no, no. The whole idea of Article 5 means that Congress can put restrictions on the state's voting, like it, and especially a time limit. I mean, that just is inherent in the idea of a constitutional amendment. So, you know, in my mind, the Supreme Court has really already blessed this almost verbatim. Um, yeah, you know, I think one important difference with the 20, the 27th Amendment dealt with congressional pay raises. And it's important to note First, that that amendment did not include um, a, a time limit. It didn't include a ratification deadline. Therefore, you know, the fact that, that the nation ratified it 200 years later, it doesn't matter because Congress didn't say you can't, you know, Congress didn't limit the time for ratification. But I think more importantly with that amendment is the fact that the issue of congressional pay didn't change over time. All of the um, sort of factors and considerations that went into um, being concerned that congressmen and senators would vote themselves a pay raise were the same, you know, in the late 18th century as they are today. Nothing's different. But today uh, is quite a bit different than 1972. Women have achieved, you know, a lot in the past 50 years. The meaning of sex 
is, as you were saying earlier in this webcast, you know, is the meaning of sex has changed dramatically in the past 50 years. So um, even if you, you know, could pass some amendments with, with, um, without a deadline and could hold them open in perpetuity, certainly not all amendments, um, certainly that wouldn't apply to all amendments. Yeah, well, especially um, because actually the, the 27th Amendment, it wasn't such a done deal. We, we counted as part of the, the amendments um, that we, we ratify in the Constitution. But there, there are plenty of courts who don't enforce that amendment. And right. I wonder if part of that is because it, it follows such a bizarre outlier process for, for getting ratified. Um, but I, I think you're really pointing to the key here, Jennifer, which is that American voters have not actually had the chance to consider the merits of the ERA. The last time we had this conversation, it was with, as you say, a totally different context. Um, many fewer, for example, federal protections against sex discrimination and um, no debate at all as to what the word sex meant. It meant men and women. <laughs> um, now we are having this massive debate with all of these consequences about the meaning of sex and it's very controversial, right? People are very feel very strongly on both sides, and you know there are proposals for legislation both in the states and on the federal level. And and you know obviously uh, all three of us have opinions about all of that legislation. But the point is, this is very very much a live debate issue. Um, and and to just sort of wave your hands around and say no no no, we've done the debate is over when the vast majority of voters today um, were either you know, they didn't have a chance to weigh in the first time, and they certainly haven't had a chance to weigh in um, on, on the in the modern context. So it, it really does right. seem like, actually, this is just some some law school, it does show you that, you know, law school students can change the world. Uh, this is just some some law school students um, paper, this right. idea that you could take all of these ratifications that very clearly failed. And in fact, right now, I'm going to throw up um, one of the, the most prominent ERA proponents, Gloria Steinem, um, after that second ratification deadline in 1982 had expired, very clearly admitting that the, the game was sort of up and you have to start over at this point. I just wanted to know what the status of ERA is now. Well, um, because it was not ratified in the nine years allotted to it, uh, it now has to start the process over again and come out of, uh, be passed by the House and the Senate and go through you know, all of the state ratification process, which no one knows, but I mean, probably is something like eight or 10 years. I mean, first we have to get rid of Reagan, who obviously is the first president to oppose equality and certainly the Equal Rights Amendment, Republican or Democratic. Uh, but um, it does have to go through the process over again. But it Okay, there's lots to unpack. <laughs> the main point is that even Gloria Steinem admits, admitted in real time, contemporaneously, that the ERA was DOA. So now there's this total about face. There's this total reversal where the ERA proponents say, oh, wait, the 27th Amendment passed after all this time. Let's see if we can get a few more states to ratify it or, you know, symbolically ratify it. And then we'll just claim that it's part of the Constitution and guess what? We'll get Columbia Law School to start printing up pocket constitutions that have the ERA in it and convince people that this is where we are today. Um, 
but it's completely disingenuous. They know that it's expired. Um, and frankly, you know, I wonder whether they don't also in their heart of hearts know that it's, it's not necessary, right? I mean, the world has changed since 1972 when this was first sent to the States. It's certainly changed since 1979 when the ratification deadline expired. Um, and, you know, even people who were for the ERA then might very reasonably say it's not necessary today. Um, my mother actually was a big ERA proponent. She used to walk around our house with her, these blue jeans, she had an ERA patch on the back. And, you know, she was all Gloria Steinemed out. And I think if you ask my mother today, she would say, we have essentially achieved many of the goals of the ERA, which at the time, um, the goals were to eliminate intentional discrimination against similarly situated men and women, right? To, to prevent women from unfair discrimination. Um, now we have laws that prohibit that. And, you know, frankly, uh, my daughters have grown up in a world where the sky's the limit. There are no barriers to, to what they can do. Um, you know, it, it's just, it, it, it's funny. It's like a time warp. And I think people forget this country is only, is less than 250 years old. Well, this amendment is almost 50 years old. And it's older than that. It was proposed in 1923. Right. But this particular iteration of the amendment, right, right that we're talking about is 50 years old. So just to even show people how things have changed. Now, I, I think I think that you guys probably were not even born at the time. I was all of 11 when the Equal Rights uh, Amendment ratification deadline passed, the first one in 1979. Um, this is what I was watching and doing in 1979. This is where our culture was. <laughs> The accident occurred here at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant a dozen miles south of Harrisburg. Some 60 Americans, including our fellow citizen whom you just saw bound and blindfolded, are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan, and never, never, never let you forget your romance, cause I'm a woman. Jolie, the eight-hour perfume for your 24-hour woman.
Go with Hertz. It's where the winners rent. Hertz, where the winners rent. <laughs> so this is what we're talking about, okay? It the was last so time the ERA's deadline expired was when all that stuff was on TV <laughs> and on right. the radio. O.J. Simpson hadn't yet killed two people, okay? He was still a respectable member of society. That's how long ago it was. And there I was watching the solid gold dancers, you know, thinking about equal rights for women with my mother parading around with her ERA patch. I mean, this is just not the world we live in today. Yeah, and I think... Go ahead, You know, one of the more entertaining things that I've done over the past few days is read some of the briefs submitted by these major law firms that charge a thousand dollars an hour, um, big names, all writing on behalf of, we should consider, uh, the ERA ratified. And when you read it and you ask like, why, you know, what right, do you not have, I mean, you are a woman here writing a brief, you're working, like you're getting paid so much, like you're very respected. What, like, how are you not equal? And they start with, well, this would send a message that women are equal. Okay. Is that what our constitution is for? Is like a messaging document? Like that's an executive order. You know, that's I, or I don't, social media posts. Right. Okay. That doesn't, uh, but you know, okay, fine. Uh, messaging, but then it goes on. It's like, well, there are taxes on tampons. So that is sexist. <laughs> seriously says that, Inez. Taxes on tampons have got to go. And like, I guess if a state wants to not tax tampons, there are states that don't do it. But like, do I have a constitutional right to like not pay taxes on tampons? Like, is that what we're fighting about? Is that this full fight is about taxes on tampons? And then it's like, no, there's more. And I'm just going to read the sentence. <laughs> Like laws that prevent trans students from joining a team consistent with their gender identity, deny them an equal education experience and further underscore the urgent need for the ERA. So for the like 10 trans students who have somehow been denied the right to participate in the team, like I haven't heard of them actually. I feel like everyone is letting trans students, but for the, the 10 that they need their own constitutional amendment, it was just, yeah, it, it, it truly is ironic that, um, that we have all of these sort of uh, girl bossing, powerful female lawyers submitting briefs uh, on behalf of a quote unquote women's equal rights amendment. And the primary people they point to uh, who are not protected and need to be by this amendment are, in fact, biological men. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a certain like, special flavor to that. My other favorite is like, there are not enough women in STEM, which of course there's been so much effort to get women in STEM. Girls Who Code, there's been specific scholarships. Like there could not be more attention and more money thrown at women to try and get them to do STEM. And it's like, you, you could not force me to have an engineering degree. I would rather quit college than have an engineering degree, but that's fine. So <laughs> like, well, not to, not to mention these STEM, like the programs that are funded with federal grants or state grants that encourage women to go into STEM fields, those are potentially invalid under a very strict interpretation of a forbidding sex discrimination, right? Because those are those are programs geared towards girls and women, and men are left out of those grants purely as a discrimination on the basis of sex. 
I agree. So that's why I was, you know, you know, their other big problem is that uh, still women are more likely to be uh, victims of sexual violence than men. What's like, well, men are the perpetrators of, of violence. Like statistically, they're 80% of murderers. Like they, and since most relationships are heterosexual, like that, that seems to align. But anyway, so we need uh, to do something about women in domestic violence. But all of a sudden, if you just put every man in jail immediately, like who kind of looks like a sexual assailant, um, that would go on the other side. So like you, you can't have a, a, a disparate impact on men, but you can't let anything happen to women. So I, I just don't like, do you lock everyone up? Do you just separate the sexes? And there, there's no solutions to these problems it, it, with a blunt tool like the constitution. If you want to attack, you know, sexual abuse and relationships, that's a really difficult topic. That's a really, you know, you, you've got to have states involved. You've got, to, you've got to have a lot of really like fine tip there and you just don't get it with the constitution. Yeah, they act as though the ERA would be this magic elixir that would automatically cure all forms of sexism and, and all of a sudden snap your fingers. We'd have parity in all aspects of life. There would be equal number of male and female nurses and engineers and equal number of men and women in prison and equal number of, you know, everything, equal number of men and women in combat. And wouldn't this be the best, you know, socially engineered society we could create? And, you know, first of all, who would want to live in that kind of world? And second of all, you know, why is it government's role to, to create that kind of world? I mean, it's absurd. And I think that if the American public had an opportunity to really talk about and think about what the ER proponents, ERA proponents are asking for, they would be appalled. Yeah, it's, it's really a, a sidelining of anybody who would be a victim of the downsides of this kind of enforced equality, right? Um, there, there isn't already, there isn't a lot of sympathy for, you know, the, the swimmers who, Jennifer, you had a fantastic uh, article about this topic with the NCAA and, and women's sports. Um, the swimmers who are missing out on scholarships and opportunities because they're swimming against a biological male who identifies as female. And we're already having all of these sort of debates. Um, you know, we had uh, um, Lauren from Wolf on at the bar just a few weeks ago talking about how they have to file a lawsuit to to try to, to um, salvage the rights of incarcerated women who are being housed with biological men who identify as women. Well, you know, we're talking about this ERA as though it's supposed to be some great boon to girls and women um, and solve all these, these, you know, as you say, like an elixir to solve any disparity between men and women. Um, and at the same time, we're ignoring the fact that a lot of the opportunities and the way that women live their lives today relies on the fact that the law can look at them and say, you're a woman, you're a man you're going to use, you know, you're going to run on this track team. You're going to run on this track team. You're going to um, have a pat down from a female officer, not a male officer, right? You're going to um, be a recipient for this grant because you're a girl and we're trying to get you encouraged to go into STEM. All of those decisions by government 
rely on on the the government's ability at the federal, state, or municipal level to say you're a man and you're a woman, and to distinguish between the biological sexes. Um, and that's potentially the the ability that the ERA is going to take away uh, from our our law. And I, I just I think just like in the trans context, but this is so much worse because again just getting rid of that whole messy issue of how you identify versus your biology, right? We're just saying, you know, men, come on in. Any space for women, come on in. You don't need to identify as a woman. You don't need to have surgery or hormones. Uh, you, you don't have to do do a thing. Um, you're just in women. all women's sports competitions, private spaces, and, and more. Yeah, and just to give you an example, in Massachusetts, we have a state-based equal rights amendment um, that's part of our state constitution. And the, the very real result of that is that boys are allowed to play on girls' volleyball and field hockey teams. And I've talked about this before in other contexts, but um, there are no protected spaces for women because of the state ERA in Massachusetts. So if you have a field hockey team at a high school, but not in, in America, field hockey is a woman's sport. Um, you cannot exclude boys from playing on that team. And that's exactly the type of thing you will see on a national level um, if the, the courts decide they're going to shoehorn this, this expired amendment uh, into our constitution without our consent. So, uh, you know, I think it's very concerning. I think it's, it's even more concerning that these activists think that they can just proclaim it so and it will be so. Um, I'm really hoping that the DC Circuit, that the uh, that the Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit rules definitively on this, because it would be very easy for the court to sort of wash its hands of this case and say uh, that the plaintiffs don't have standing and they're not going to address the issue on the merits. Um, that uh, that will allow you know either the the political branches of government. Um, or just activists to kind of assert this as as law of the land when it's not so. Um, let's let's let me ask you, May, about exactly um, whether your brief addresses the issue of the fact that the Senate has not dissolved this deadline. Because even if you uh, sort of accept all these other arguments that you can have ratifications going on from the '70s all through to 2020. Um, and, and even given all the arguments that Jennifer has made about the change in the definitions of the words, the different composite, composition of the electorate, all of that, um, you know, at the end of the day, they clearly think that the deadline needs to be dissolved because they passed that that um, in the House after hearings. Right. So the, the House side that, that was um, Democrat majority obviously had a stronger majority in, in the House. They've repeatedly passed um, resolutions dissolving the the deadline now they argue they have to pass it only by bare majority i mean even if i i sort of bought into the rest of their arguments i would say they have to pass that the same way that um that congressional deadline was passed originally which is by two-thirds not by a bare majority um, but even so they they've dissolved the deadline quote unquote in the house um established by congress but uh, what arguments do they make about the fact that they haven't gotten um the senate even by a bare majority to dissolve this deadline yeah, so I mean, our brief doesn't go into it just because it, it it never had to present itself as part of this case. I mean, they the 
whether the Senate has pushed back the deadline, whether the House has pushed back the deadline, it doesn't really matter because the only deadlines that do exist haven't, uh, well, they've, they've long passed. And so really the questions here are one, whether Congress can ever add a deadline, which I think is, of course they can, they, they almost always do. And then two, if they do, whether it has to be in this sentence rather than that sentence. So the district court didn't get into it. And so our brief doesn't get into it. You've got a lot of legal scholars out there. So um, in 2020, the Office of Legal Counsel, which is this little known body in the Department of Justice, that's like all the nerds and they sit there and they answer questions that haven't been presented yet to courts. And they can be really big questions. Like, do you have the authority to go to war with this country? Um, or is this statute unconstitutional? But they basically opined that, no, you can't just go amend the deadline. So you've got an internal DOJ document saying that. So I think in order for that, in, for at least the U.S. government to recognize that the deadline has changed, the Biden DOJ is going to have to do something about that opinion. And it's a really well done opinion. And I don't, I would see it as a very political move to, uh, to rescind it. Jennifer, do you think that's going to happen? Do you think they're working on rescinding? Oh, I'm, I'm sure they're squirreled away right now coming up with ways to destroy that that memo um, because, you know, the Biden administration is on record as, as supporting this. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is to amend the Constitution, you need large supermajorities of voters to agree. Um, through their elected representatives. And that has to happen in real time. And, you know, if we want to amend the Constitution to eliminate single-sex sports teams, to, you know, require that male and females, males and females be housed together in prisons, to, uh, you know, adopt a disparate impact standard for sex under the Constitution, then we need to have that conversation. Um, our state representatives need to have that conversation and they need to have an opportunity to vote on this. It cannot just be forced upon us by the courts or by the Congress or by activists who are just printing up new documents. You mean you don't remember electing Columbia Law School to represent? No, I don't. <laughs> What's kind of funny is I was looking through, uh, Nevada was the first state to do it and they had a lot of Republicans vote for this, you know, so-called ratification because nobody thought it was serious you had like the sponsor of the activity do, wanting to do it on the 45th anniversary when it was first proposed so there was like it felt like a show and yeah i know that there were a few people who really did mean for it to do something but i think even content like even the 2017 legislators who voted for it were not totally aware at least not in not in 2017, maybe by the time it got to Virginia, there had been enough momentum. But if every legislator really thought this is going to potentially equate to equal outcome of the sexes, regardless of circumstance, they probably would not have said, okay, yeah, put me down for a symbolic yes. I mean, that's an easy vote. Oh, I love equal rights. Um, but it's a much harder vote when you actually know what's at stake. So I would say even some of the modern ratifications had no idea really what they were doing. Obviously, the 1970s ratifications had no, no idea what they were doing. But it's hard to say that a Nevada, you know, congressperson who's got a thousand other things going on really gave this any 
Um, yeah, I mean, I God. think they, they thought it was symbolic. It wasn't going to matter. Okay, we'll vote for that. And also, you know, like we said at the beginning, it's it's feel-good language that that seems like something we can all agree on. The problem is none of these state legislators have actually read the briefs of the activists that, that as you outlined, may tell us exactly what it is that, that the ERA will do or what they want it to do. Um, so they haven't read those briefs. They don't know what it is people are asking for with this. Um, and they don't understand that on top of the current state of play in constitutional law, where sex, you know, unfair sex discrimination is unlawful under the Equal Protection Clause when it's when it's done by government. Um, when you layer this on top of the current state of play, it it can only mean much more uh, than what they intended it to mean in the 1970s. So people haven't drilled down on those different levels of nuance, you know, they just say, well, we're against sex discrimination. You know what? So am I. I'm against sex discrimination. And since it's a proposal from the 1920s, I think like the history is so interesting here. And a lot of people have uh, written on it, but the women got the right to vote in 1920. But what comes with the right to vote? Can you sit on a jury? Can you be elected to office? I mean, a lot of these rights were a little bit hazy. And so it made sense in 1923, when this language, like a little older version of this language was first proposed to say, no, 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 we also have equal rights. We can sit on a jury, you know, like we can do those things that are rights as citizens. And I think already by the 1970s, that had been a little bit, you know, shaken. And that's why you saw it not pass is because the original justification had already by then, you know, left. And so then to pick up an, like a third, uh, definition is like bizarre on top of bizarre um yeah the you know i think it's important to realize that americans rejected this amendment exactly after so it, the era um it, by the time and you actually heard gloria steinem reference it in that clip that we um we showed but by the time you get to the 70s the era thought it looked like it was just cruising to um to ratification Every living, that's what you hear her referencing, every living president at that time, um, Republican and Democrat, so that was Eisenhower, um, Nixon, right, alongside the Democratic uh, presidents, you know, Carter, all living um, presidents at that time endorsed the ERA. And it was in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party platforms to endorse it. Um, and then we have have this gal, Phyllis Schlafly. Um, there she is was really the first person to kick off this national conversation and ask the hard questions like, what does this actually mean? What does this, this language actually mean about the status of women under the law? Because um, those, those ratifications, they thought they were going to be able to meet that 1979 deadline because state after state, Republican, Democrat, were ratifying this amendment until Phyllis Schlafly stood up and said, why don't we think about the actual consequences of this? And those, those ratifications, after having that national conversation, I mean, we had Gloria Steinem or, or Betty Friedan versus Phyllis Schlafly on all of the major networks, right? Um, it, it's, they're really great debates. I really highly recommend watching some of these debates between Schlafly and Betty Friedan. Um, but they had all these debates and all the major networks and, and women and men all had an opportunity to discuss what this amendment actually means. And they decided we don't want this. 
Um, we don't want this, this interchangeability in the law between men and women. There are too many negative consequences. Um, but they, they came to that conclusion and, and slowed the ratifications. That's why you have those five states, um, four of them that actually actively rescinded their ratifications, one of them that had a sunset clause. I can't I never remember which state it is. That had. I, think it's, I think it's Montana um, that, that had a sunset clause. Um, but but the reason that there was this grinding halt to this amendment that at that time had seemed like it was on the track to passage. That's why it was so easy for it to garner two thirds of the Senate and two thirds of, of the House because Republicans and Democrats were all on board. But as soon as we had that actual conversation, right, about the consequences, people were like, OK, well, well, that's not what we meant. Right. And, and that's what's so missing in this com- in this whole modern debate right. is. As you've said, Jennifer, we haven't had a chance to have that conversation at all um, as, as in the sort of national prominent way that it would be if it were an amendment that started now and the ratification started over just at zero. And we all had a chance to sort of discuss the upsides, the downsides, you know, whether or not a state wants to ratify, whether or not you there are Republicans. And, and, that, and not just discuss, discuss but, but have the legislators vote after that discussion. Right. And that's that's the key. It would be hard to imagine. I mean, we we can't even get, you know, majority support really or super majority support on most anything right now to say that you would have super majority support for the idea that we need a constitutional amendment so that we can have transgender sports mandated is like is it's crazy. I mean, that's a good point. That's a good point because we are a divided country and, and constitutional amendments are not supposed to be one party shoving something down the other party's throat. Um, quite the contrary. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the current state of play and, and where things go from here. Um, this being January 27th, two years after the symbolic ratification by Virginia Um, activist groups are claiming that today the ERA is part of the Constitution and they are planning to file lawsuits in various jurisdictions across the country um, to try to enforce their view of the law. So we'll we'll have to see what happens with those. Um, I have to assume that they're going to be able to find some district court judge somewhere who will agree with them. Um, And then it will ultimately go up to the courts of appeal and I think ultimately be decided by the United States Supreme Court. Um, At the same time that you have that drama taking place, there is the action over in the D.C. Circuit, which we talked about. And that's where states are suing. Three states are suing for enforcement um, of the ERA. Um, so that that action is happening there. And you also have Congress. Um, Inez explained before that the House of Representatives has voted to lift the ratification deadline, something I think is not legally valid or legitimate, but they think they can do it. The Senate has not so voted. But if, if they did and if President Biden were to sign such a measure, we then have a constitutional fight about whether Congress has the right to, to retroactively change a deadline for a constitutional amendment. So, um, and, and then you guys talked earlier about the Office of Legal Counsel and their um, opinions, the, their opinion on this matter and whether or not the Biden administration is, is tinkering with that and trying to repeal that and, 
um, rule administratively on this topic. So the, the, the field of battle is everywhere, right? It's, it's the Congress, it's the Department of Justice, it's the White House, it's the DC Circuit, it's going to be all sorts of other federal courts. Um, and who knows if it won't be in state legislatures too. So this is, this is something we, we have to be vigilant and we have to continue to fight on all fields. Yeah, I mean, this is this is really um, this has taken, I think, uh, taken a lot of people by surprise because they think like Jennifer um, pointed out with the, the 70s montage, right? Uh, all the history books until now basically wrote, you know, here lies the ERA dead on arrival, murdered by Phyllis Schlafly, right? Um, that that was always what was written uh, down about the history of this amendment. And, and so the, the fact that there's a very live challenge around this amendment, I think people are still honestly waking up to the fact that there is one, um, which, which is yet again, another endorsement for why we need to have a national conversation about this and not just slip it in via Columbia Law School printing, you know, constitutions in the dead of night with the ERA attached to it. Um, but, but I see that we, we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. So we'd like to thank all of you listeners for joining us once again at The Bar, which is a firmly anti-18th Amendment podcast. <laughs> yes, it definitely is. Uh, and we hope you'll join us again in two weeks for our 21st virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. And get- thanks, thanks again, Mae May Davis, for joining us from, from the Independent Women's Law Center, the Jennifer Heads Up. So uh, thanks, thanks, ladies, for this wonderful conversation about the ERA that is erasing women in our name. And, and thanks to everybody for tuning in once again on Thursdays at 5 p.m. to At The Bar. We'll see you next time. Have a good night.